Uh, we're looking at the book of Judges uh, this term. It's our, our habit to go through the Bible for exactly the reasons we thought about earlier, um, that it is in the Bible that God promises to speak to us. The Bible is the very words of the Holy Spirit, Old Testament and New. So we're about to hear the Holy Spirit speak to us. Judges 6. And we're going to read the story of Gideon. We're going to actually pick it up at verse 11. So Judges 6 and verse 11. Just to set the scene, the the Israelites are in God's holy land, Canaan. So God's people are in the country, the promised land. And the idea was that it would be a little picture of heaven as they worshipped him and lived for him. And all the other nations saw how great God was. But the problem is they keep turning and worshipping other gods, even though they're meant to be in this kind of earthly heaven. They keep worshipping other gods. And so as our story begins, God, because of their idolatry, has sent foreign nations to conquer them. And so they're living in fear. And we pick up the story, verse 11, with this man Gideon. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valour. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I've found favour in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me, please. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes and an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal uh, that your father has and cut down the Asherah that's beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. Because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. 
When the man of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who's done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he's broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerobal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the least came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the village of Jezreel, the valley of Jezreel, sorry. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali and they all went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said, Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the floor only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. Uh, how do you introduce yourself when you when you meet people uh, for the first time? Um, you're saying hello, nice to meet you. You probably start with your name, but, but what next? Usually it's something about ourselves, aren't we? You know, we come from so-and-so, I'm studying this or that. Uni students, you'll be giving the same kind of speech over and over again if you're fresh, there's no doubt. Because it's, it's, it's our stories that, that define us, that tell us who we are. Um, I suspect if you're a Christian, maybe you're a new fresher at, at uni or you've started a new job, you're a Christian, you, you've met someone for the first time this last week, almost certainly you haven't said something like this. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm Frank. Uh, my dad, my dad... We won't believe this, but um, he actually made this whole world. Uh, I'm the son of the creator God. Uh, funnily enough, uh, my, my brother, elder brother, uh, about 2,000 years ago, um, he came down and died on a cross in order that you might be forgiven. He's actually the king of the universe now, reigning in heaven. Uh, and he's willing to welcome you in as well, if you like. None, none of us speak like that, do we? And the reason we don't speak like that is we don't think like that. If you're a Christian, you've got loads of identities. There's loads of descriptions given to you uh, in the Bible. But we struggle to believe them. We, we're called children of God, sons of God. We're called slaves to righteousness. In other words, people who just can't help doing good. Uh, we're called conquerors. Romans 8, Paul says we're more than conquerors. On and on we could go. The problem is we don't believe them, do we? We don't believe them. And that was Gideon. That was Gideon. Uh, do you see how the angel greeted him in verse 11? The angel of the Lord came, sat on um, this, this tree in Ophrah, and says to Gideon, verse 12, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Look at you, Gideon, he says. Look at you. 
Iron Man, Captain America, Hulk, all rolled into one. You're a, you're a conquering hero, Gideon, aren't you? But he doesn't look like it, does he? See what he's doing? Again, verse 12. Sorry, verse 11. He's beating out the wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. He, he's carrying away. He's like the kid eating his school lunch in, in, in the toilet because he's worried about the school bullies coming in and pinching it. You don't beat out grain in a, in a wine press. In fact, if, you, if we'd read the whole chapter, we'd see, just look up a couple of verses, chapter uh, 6, verse 2, that the Midianites had overpowered God's people so much so that the, the, the people of Israel were living in dens and caves, hiding away full of fear. Well, so too Gideon. And then the angel of the Lord turns up and says, mighty man of valor. Children, valor just means courage, strength. It's so incongruous because Gideon doesn't look like a mighty conqueror. It's so incongruous that some people say, oh, the angel's being sarcastic. But I don't think God does sarcasm to his people. He sometimes does to other gods. You get it in the prophets, but not to his people. He's not turned up to mock Gideon. No, God has turned up through this angel to say, this is who I say you are, Gideon. Listen to me. You are a mighty man of valor. You are going to be my savior. You are going to be the one through whom I rescue the people. That is your identity, Gideon. Listen to me. Uh, all this talk of identity is quite quite fashionable at the moment, isn't it? We're all told to, to find our identity somewhere. Perhaps you're not a Christian. You've come along this morning, dragged along, or just wondered what on earth these strange Christians do on a Sunday morning. If, if, if that is you, you're so welcome. I'm glad you're here. But perhaps you've had this kind of dilemma. I'm constantly being told to find myself, to discover who I am, to, to look inside. And it's totally bemusing. Where do you look? In generations past, we also looked outside. We were told who we were by our, our village or our clan or our family. We, we fitted into a sort of societal structure. Nowadays, we can't even look at our bodies and discover whether we're male or female, we're told. Even those sort of facts of biology are not determinative. We, we're, we're told we have to look and look and look. And it's paralyzing, totally paralyzing. Anxiety goes through the roof. If I don't even know who I am, how do I know what I'm meant to do, what I'm here for, what life is all about? And yet at the same time, at the same time as we're all being told to somehow create our identity, we can't get rid of this idea that actually our identity is given to us from outside, that it's not something we can choose and create. I think you see that in some of these programs on TV that are are popular. Um, Who do you say I am? Or who am I? Sorry, I can't remember what the... Who do you say I am? I can't remember what the title is. Who do you think you are? There we go. I wrote it down. That was probably better. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Have you seen that program Uh, where where celebrities go on and and meet historians and they trace their family tree and they're all delighted to find out that they're descended from William the Conqueror or, you know, they tend to find all the goodies in their family history. We, We like the idea of knowing where we're from, which can't kind of get rid of that. Or we identify in, in sport with a particular nation. You know, I'm supporting England or Wales or Scotland or France or whoever it may be, or, or Liverpool or Newcastle. We, we identify with something outside of ourselves. We just can't resist it. Even our accents. We're proud to have a Geordie accent or a Scouse accent or a whatever accent it may be. We can't get rid of this sense that our identity comes from outside. If you're not a Christian this morning, there is good news. There is good news you from God who knows who you are and can walk you into the light. Let's dive in and look more carefully at this Gideon story. We're just going to go through it back and forth between Gideon and God. It starts with God's call. 
Uh, he identifies Gideon, says you're a mighty man of valour, unlikely as it looks. And he gives Gideon two jobs, to conquer and to cleanse. The conquering is in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Go and drive off the Midianites who, who invaded. They're like the Nazis. They've come in, conquered your country. You are going to go and drive them off. That's your first job, Gideon, conquer. But Gideon's given a second job a bit later on, and that is cleansing. Verse 25. God says, before you go and do all this battling the Midianites, the enemy out there, you need to go home. Because at home, you've got an altar to Baal, who is another god, a false god. And next to that altar is a big Asherah pole. Now, Asherah poles were statues of a female goddess, Baal's partner. They were kind of exaggerated sort of sexual features on the, on the statue. And God says, you go home to your dad's property where you live and chop that down, burn it and sacrifice to me. In other words, cleanse your home before you go out and conquer for me. Those are the two callings of Gideon. And they might seem like a world apart. We're in kind of Iron Age Israel. But they're actually the same callings on you and me this morning. Cleansing and conquering. Our conquering, of course, is not with the sword. Jesus sends us out not to, to fight on crusades, but sends us out with the gospel, the word of God, the sword of the spirit, to conquer the nations for him. His last words on earth to the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, go and preach. I want the nations to be mine. And that is the job of the church ever since. That's how the gospel ended up in, in, in England, our own country. Because the church went forward from those 12 to 3,000 to 6,000, on and on it grew to the ends of the earth. We are called to conquer. And of course, we're called to cleanse too. We are not to be people whose hearts divided between two gods. We're meant to be single-minded, wholehearted. Jesus alone is meant to be Lord of our hearts. At this point, you might say, well, okay, I've got the second one wrapped up. I'm not worshipping Baal or Asherah or Allah or Shiva or Zeus or Jupiter or Hera or Thor or Loki or any of those other gods. But we need to hold fire just a little. I wonder if you noticed as we read through the story of Gideon, he wasn't someone who denied that Yahweh, the, the true God, existed. The Lord God, as he's called in, in, in Judges 6. He believed the Lord God existed, but he added Baal in. In other words, it was both for him. He was what's called a, a syncretist. I'll take both. And this is where we all fall down. Very few of, of you, if you'd call yourself Christians, are heading off to the, to the mosque and the temple and the synagogue on the different days of the week. I suspect none of you are. <laughs> but actually, there are all sorts of gods of our hearts that have sneaked in. So yes, I, I'm a child of God, but I'm also addicted to the rush of sexual pleasure that I get from pornography. Oh yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm also very, very keen to be socially acceptable, so I won't do anything that jeopardizes that. I'm a forgiven sinner, but at all costs, I must have a girlfriend or boyfriend. And so if I need to compromise Jesus' commands in order to get one, I will do it. Do you see, it's not that we've given up on Jesus entirely. It's just that there are other forces at work in our lives. And just because they don't have the names of gods, we shouldn't mistake what they are. They are little gods. 
uh, that control us. As Jesus says, at the end of the day, you can't have two masters. No one can serve God and money, to use the example he uses. No one could serve God and money, God and romance, God and popularity, God and comfort. It's not that you never get any of those things from the Lord God. It's just that someone has to be in charge. Cleansing as well as conquest. So there's Gideon's uh, God's call. Uh, look how Gideon responds. Gideon's response, well, it's Gideon's cowardice. God's call, but Gideon's cowardice. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Uh, verse 12, we get the call, sorry. Verse 13, Gideon speaks and he expresses doubts about God. Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all these wonderful deeds our fathers recount to us saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? He's now forgotten us, forsaken us. See what Gideon's saying? Oh, grandpa's told me the stories. I've read the old, old Testament. You know, we're only in Judges, but you know, I've heard the stories of Genesis and Exodus, parting the Red Sea, the 10 plagues. Well, it's all right for your grandpa, isn't it? But come on. It's the 11th century BC now. That stuff's all outdated. I don't see it. I've never seen a miracle. I've never seen a sea parted. God's gone. I wonder if you can empathise with him. I've read about Jesus feeding the 5,000, walking on water, raising the dead. I've read about Jesus dying on the cross and coming back to life and ascending to heaven, but I've never seen it. Where is he? It doesn't seem that he is the king of heaven and earth. Doubts about God. And then doubts about himself. God just, the, the angel just totally ignores him. Doesn't answer. He just goes straight on, verse 14, and says again, no, go in this might and, and save Israel from the Midianites. And this time in verse 15, do you see what Gideon does? He expresses doubts about himself. Please, Lord, how could I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. It's a word that kind of means poorest. And I'm the least in my clan. N not me. Maybe someone could, but not, not me. Little me. He's actually totally exaggerating. If, if you tracked with the story earlier, you might have noticed that he, that he, <laughs> that, that his, he takes 10 servants to go and pull down the altar. And he chooses 10 servants. So presumably there are more than 10. He is, if you've got 10 servants, you're doing all right for yourself. I don't know how many servants you've got, but I've got, I'm on zero. Okay, he gets the butler and the stable boy and that. You know, he has got, uh, it's Downton Abbey here. His dad has got a worship centre in his backyard. Okay, it's a little sort of, you know, I've got St. Paul's Cathedral in my backyard. But it's not the biggest of cathedrals, to be honest. You know, it's just a little one. He's exaggerating his weakness. That's often the way we work, isn't it? Oh, it's not for me to get involved in conquest and cleansing. Not, not for me to get involved in mission, for example. Oh, I, I'm not that kind of person, not that type of Christian. I'm too busy. I, I, I'm not sure of all the right answers. I don't know what to say. I get tongue-tied. I've got kids. I've got a job. I've got... We kind of exaggerate our weakness as an excuse for service. See what's going on. Big picture. What's going on is Gideon hears God say, mighty man of valor, and says, no, that's not who I am. Not me. And that's what leads him to, to, to disobedience, to not being willing to take up the call to mission and holiness, conquest and cleansing. I'm not going anywhere or risking anything for that God. Thank you very much. If you don't believe what God says about you, it weakens 
your ability to follow him in mission and holiness. Imagine a, a farmer back in the days uh, of uh, America where they're going out and, and claiming new farmland and, and he gets the right, perhaps in Washington, D.C., he gets the right to a packet of land out, out west. So he's got the little piece of paper and he heads out and he, and he gets his farm and someone next door gets an, you know, another one and, and they both start farming. And then after a couple of months, he thinks, actually, am I, am I really the rightful owner of this land? And he, he heads back to Washington, takes a few weeks, heads back to check. Oh, I am. Oh, I am. And he, he comes back out again and then he starts doing a bit more farming. And he thinks, oh, am I sh- mm. is it definitely me that, that, that's meant to be farming this land? And he heads off back on his journey and he comes back and forth. How productive is his farm going to be compared to the guy who's just confident he's meant to be there and, and, and get going? Well, his farm will be withering and falling apart as he spends all his time thinking, is it me? Is it me? I'm not sure. I'm not. Well, so too as Christians, that the less confident we are that we are children of God, loved, accepted, forgiven, full of the spirit, the less able we are to serve. The more we believe what God has said about us, the more it frees us up to get on actually doing what he wants us to be doing. Gideon's so cowardly, so full of doubt. They ask for this test. It's a strange one. Three tests, actually, in the passage we read. The first one is, is this meal. It's in verses 19 through 21. He, he says, look, okay, I hear what you're asking me to do, but ju- just, just stay here. I want to try something. I want to test you on something. And he goes away and gets this meal. It's a giant meal. Children, do you see what he makes? It's a whole goat. Imagine trying to eat a whole goat. And a big cauldron of broth of soup. And, and this flour, this effra f- full of flour, and I, I try to work this out. I, I don't do much baking. Um, but the amount of flour Gideon uses to make these bread cakes is about enough to make 60 loaves of bread the way we do it. Okay, imagine turning it with six, you know, here's one loaf of bread. Imagine 60 loaves of that, 60 loaves of bread. Okay, that is, like, the hungriest student can eat that. He comes back and see what he does. He pops it on the rock, gives it to this strange figure, and the figure taps the rock, and it's gone in a moment. Eaten like that, boom, gone. And then Gideon realizes, ah, okay, okay, there's something going on here. Gideon's cowardice is met by God's comfort. God's comfort. How does God move Gideon to action? Well, through his presence. And his peace. All the way through the encounter, God is saying, I am with you. It's there in verse 12. The Lord is with you. Uh, It's there down uh, in verse 16. I will be with you in the battle. But but you could even say there's, there's more than that. You see, when this this angel turns up in verse 11, angel just means messenger. Gideon sort of doesn't really he knows there's something special about him, but he he didn't sort of particularly re- realise who he's talking to. But look at the way that the, 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 the Holy Spirit, as he's written chapter 6, goes back and forth between speaking about the angel of the Lord speaking, but then look in verse 14 who's speaking. The Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. Verse 16, who's speaking? The Lord said to him, Lord in capital letters in, in English versions means Yahweh, it's God. In other words, this figure, who presumably doesn't look super special, otherwise Gideon would have straight away been kind of... It's not the angel Gabriel or Michael. It is someone who is both sent by God and yet is God. 
sent by God, yet is God. Who is this is the Lord Jesus. He hasn't yet become man. He's taken on some temporary form that Gideon can see and talk with. Presumably he looks like a man. He's not become flesh yet. That won't happen until he's born in Bethlehem. But this is the word who was with God and was God. God is literally with him. God is talking there. The Lord Jesus, the son of God, is talking to Gideon. And Gideon is saying, well, the Lord's abandoned us. He's literally talking to you. You're standing with him. And he's promised he'll stay with you. God was with him all along and he didn't realise. For some of us, by the way, that, that is true of our lives. Perhaps you've grown up in a Christian home or gone along to church every week. God has been there all along. You've never realised he has been with you, keeping you, sustaining you. And you, you've sort of thought he, he's distant, but he is there. Perhaps you've thought to yourself, well, I, I've not seen any miracles. You've done the Gideon argument. Surely if God was there, something more spectacular in my life would have happened. But that's not the way God works. Even when he came to earth, finally, Lord Jesus Carpenter's son in a random backwater country. Don't wait for the miraculous before you realise that God is there. And see how patient he is. He doesn't whack Gideon with a stick. He patiently walks him through his doubts and worries. So much so that he even preaches, as it were, to Gideon, preaches peace to him. When in verse 22, do you see Gideon suddenly clicks Oh, Lord God, now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now, it doesn't matter saying an angel. He, the messenger of the Lord, he, he realizes that he's just, I've just seen God face to face. I'm going to die. But what does God preach? Verse 23, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And so Gideon even builds an altar and calls it, the Lord is peace. This is a remarkable scene. Okay, Old Testament stories are sometimes quite difficult to track with because of the weird names and all the rest of it. But you see a remarkable scene. God has come down, spoken to Gideon. Gideon has insulted him to his face. And God has just been patient and patient and patient. And then, God's, then Gideon has tested him with this food sign. Let's see if you can eat this mountain of food. Testing God is not a good thing. And God is patient. And at the end of the whole encounter, God, God says, Gideon says, oh, no, I've, I, I just realized what I've done. And God says, peace, peace be to you. See the grace of God to his doubting servants. Yes, Gideon, you're weak. Yes, you're doubting. But I am with you. Yes, you've sinned by insulting me, looking in my face and insulting me. And yet still peace. Not because of anything in Gideon, because of the great kindness of God. God's call is met by Gideon's cowardice, is met by God's comfort. And then finally, Gideon cleanses. He does take on this job. He's still afraid. I don't know if you noticed when he goes to the altar, uh, he does it in the middle of the night, verse 27. It's very rare in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that people's motivations are given in the text. We're very rarely told what people are thinking. But we're told in verse 27, he's so afraid of his family that he, he sneaks up in the middle of the night and he goes to this shrine to Baal and Asherah and tears it down and builds an altar to, to God and sacrifices on it. And the villagers are not happy. They come out in the morning and you realise why Gideon's been scared. They come out and said, right, who's done that? Who's just knocked down the mosque, the synagogue, the temple? We are going to kill him. Who is it? And they work out, it's Gideon. And they say to Joash, who's Gideon's dad, who runs the, 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 the shrine to Baal, right, bring him out, let's kill him. And amazingly and, and surprisingly, Joash, Gideon's dad, says, well, well just a minute. What are you doing? If Baal is really a god, then he'll be able to defend himself. 
You don't need to do it for him. Let Baal contend for himself. He even says uh, in verse 31, um, are you going to need to save your God? And that saving word is the word used throughout this book of Judges for the, for the, the saviors, the rescuers, Samson and Gideon and all the rest of them. Do you need to save your God? Is he so weak he needs defending? Notice two things, by the way. When you do go after the idols of the world, when you try and pull down these false gods that rule in our society, be they real, well, I say real gods, you know what I mean, with the other religions explicitly, or be they just world views, you must be yourself. You must follow your heart. These are religions. You can never tell anyone else what to do. That's oppressive. These are all religious beliefs. When you go after those, it will lead to opposition. If you say Jesus is Lord, he is a gracious king, but you must come to him. He will have you, but you must come. And there is no other way of salvation. It will be met with anger. There's something of the kind of no platforming thing going on here as well, isn't there? Very often in university settings, people are not allowed to take certain positions, not allowed to argue for certain positions. The debate is just banned. It's the same thing that's going on here. Is, is, is your position so weak that we can't even engage with it? Some of the debates on sexuality. You're saying I'm not even allowed to challenge the cultural view? Is the argument that weak that you just have to no platform anyone who disagrees with you? Well, that is how these false gods work. But Gideon, this time, shows some faith. He does it. He pulls down the altar. And you see what happens to him. It's an extraordinarily positive end to the story in verse 34. The spirit of the Lord clothes Gideon. And he sounds a trumpet. He blows the big shofar, the horn. And all the tribes come to him. It's time to go and bash up the Midianites. I've done the cleansing. Now we can do the conquest. The spirit of the Lord rushes on him, clothes him. Great, let's go. Lord of the Rings time. The hordes are gathered. We're going to row. It's going to be victory. And then look what happens. Last thing. Gideon's cleansing is followed by Gideon's cowardice. Again. This whole thing with the fleece. If anyone knows anything about Gideon, it's often the fleece. Laying out the fleece. See what happens, first of all. He says, if you are going to save Israel by my hand, Lord, let's do this thing with a fleece. I'm going to put a fleece on the floor. And first of all, if tomorrow morning the fleece is wet and the ground's dry, then I'll know that you're with me. It's a little test for you, God. And so it happens. And then Gideon says, do you know what? Let's do it again, but the other way around. Maybe that was just nature happening. You know, the, the fleece always sucks up water from the ground, doesn't it? That's how nature works. So let's do it the other way around. Fleece dry, ground soaking wet. And God does it again. Now, this is not about guidance. Okay, this is absolutely not about guidance. This is not Gideon finding out the will of God. He knows the will of God because God has told him it several times. Go and conquer. Time and again, Gideon's been told, go and conquer, I'll be with you. Go and conquer, I'll be with you. Gideon knows that he's meant to conquer. He's not saying, what shall I do, Lord? Let me lay out a fleece to try and sort of find your will. No, he's testing God. Are you really with me? Are you actually a kind of God who keeps your promise? Should I trust you? Uh, Baal, this other God, was God of many things, including the, the Jew, the rain. So it's a bit like Gideon saying, just, just show me you're really in charge. Okay, you can sort of keep the, the Jew that Baal's in charge of off my fleece and then put it on it when I want. You know, he's, he's just testing God. And he knows it's not a good thing. Saying to God, are you really worth bothering? Show me you're better, you're stronger, you're more powerful. Show me. He knows it's not good. Did you see how he asked the second time round? Verse 39. 
let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. We are not to copy Gideon when we're looking for guidance. You hear all these stories about Christians saying, look, I want to lay out fleeces to discern God's will. It is a bad thing. The Lord Jesus says it is a wicked and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. It's not a good thing. And it's not even about guidance anyway. All these things about, you know, Lord God, um, if you want me to ask out Mary, then make it rain. And if you want me to ask out Emma, then make it sunny, whatever it may be. Okay, it's not a good way okay, of working out God's will for your life. But incredibly, God is gracious. And he does it both times, three times, the meal and the two fleeces, three times. And God graciously does it, gives a sign to accompany the words. Well, what are we to do with all that? I mean, it's quite a fun story in some ways. What are we to do with it all? We're going to get to the actual battle next week. But what are we to do with it all? We are amazingly weak people. I'm talking to Christians now. We are amazingly weak people, fearful people, doubtful people. Gideon has, has met Jesus, seen, two, seen a miracle, sorry, been filled with the Spirit. You notice he was filled with the Spirit, and the very next thing he does is test God, doubt. Filled with the Spirit, and then the fleece thing. Twice. See how weak and fearful even Spirit-filled people can be? And do you see how far Gideon, sorry, God will go to reassure Gideon in his calling? Again, preaching peace. It's peace between you and me, Gideon. Despite all your sin and doubt and fearfulness, peace between you and me. And his presence. I am with you. I am with you. We are friends, despite all your fears and failings. And it's only when Gideon fully believes this that he's able to go and do. Next week we'll see. He then does go into the battle, finally. Peace and presence. God promises those two gifts, my peace and my presence. And he promises them in his words and with a sign. The fleece and the meal. It's the same things for us. You are not going to be called to raid the Midianites, lead an army into battle. You're very unlikely to be called to go and smash up an altar to a false god. But as we said at the beginning, you are called to mission, to conquest and to cleansing. To getting rid of all the idols that, that control you. And that you fear to let go of. I can't bear the thought of singleness. I can't bear the thought of whatever it may be. God says to you, no, we're at peace. I am your God, your father. And I am with you. And when you get that, the peace and the presence, well, then you can go and get on with what he's called you to do. And like Gideon, he gives you these two gifts. He strengthens your belief in them through the words and the signs. The word is primary. And for us, it, we won't have an encounter with God, a one-on-one -on -one encounter with God where he appears before us. But we have the gospel of, of the Lord Jesus. We have the scriptures. And our job is to go to them again and again until we believe with all our heart, yes, God is good and gracious and merciful. Yes, Jesus has died for my sins as a gracious gift. Yes, I can come to him messy and fearful and doubtful as I am, and he will accept me. I was reading about a Scottish pastor this week uh, who, who was saying to his congregation, I mean, it's 100 odd years ago now, but he's saying to his congregation, look, if you're doubting that God is good and your father, go, go and find some Bible promises and read them. And if it doesn't sort of click, you read the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If it doesn't, doesn't click, read those promises again a second time. If it doesn't click then, do it a third time. If it doesn't click then, do it again 
a hundredth time. Just keep going. The words are true. And you must look and look and look until they sink home. He said, it's like going out to, to look at the sky. You know there's a particular star up there. You know Sirius is up there. And sometimes Sirius is, is clouded. You can't see it. But what do you do? You don't doubt that it's there. You just keep looking and looking and looking until the clouds go. Some of us, we need, we, we need to go back to these promises. God is gracious and compassionate. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. And we need to just keep looking and looking. There is no other way. If you're fearful about whether God has really forgiven you, that there's no other way. You will not get an angel. You will not get a sign and a meal and a fleece and all this stuff. The word is there. And to comfort you alongside the word comes the sign that God gave to his church, which is the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So why we serve the Lord's Supper every week. It is a sign, a reminder that Christ has died. There is a penalty for sin that has been paid. A death has been served instead of your own. And so the Lord's Supper is given to the church as a way of confirming our faith. You are welcome. You are my child. I have died for you. In that sense, these signs, they're not magic. It's just bread and wine, of course. But they are spiritual. And it's a bit like I've got, I've got um, four daughters. I say to my daughters, I love you. There's the message. You're my daughter, I love you. And I hope they believe it. But every now and again, I pick them up and give them a kiss. What is the hug and the kiss doing? It's not giving them new information, is it? But it's confirming it. Well, so too, that the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, I have died for you. As you eat and drink, remember that your salvation is outside yourself. You are mine. My presence is with you. And as you believe that, well, so you'll grow in your ability to go out and speak of the free grace, the love of God. And so you'll realize you don't need these other idols. I don't have to have anything else alongside God. I read a book not long ago about um, habits. It's called Atomic Habits. And the guy, he's not a Christian, but he said this, look, if you, if you want to uh, change something about yourself, you, you've got to believe it first. As in, you've got you've to change your identity. So don't say, I'm someone trying to learn the piano. Say, I'm a pianist who's trying to get better. Don't say I'm someone trying to quit smoking. Say I'm a non-smoker who sometimes stumbles and smokes. And actually, that, that's a brilliant picture of the Christian life. You, you fearful Christian, you're not meant to say, oh, I'm, I'm trying to become a Christian. I'm sorry. You're meant to say, look, I am the Lord's. I'm born again. I'm full of the Spirit. He is with me. That is who I am. Now, let me put the porn addiction to dead death let me put the obsessive desire for other people to approve me to death let me put my fear of evangelism to death i am his he is with me and we are at peace and if you're not a christian look what she says to you all this all this can be given you you can be my child you can be guaranteed eternal life you can have a heavenly father let me tell you who you are. You were made by God. You're not an accident. You were designed purpose, not a product of random blind evolution. Yes, you've tried to deny that like the sign in the parable we looked at earlier. You've tried to run away, but I'm full of grace and I will have you back as my child. You're welcome. You're so welcome that God came down to earth, became one of us, took that rebellion on his shoulders and died. That's how welcome you are. And now he says to you, come back, come to me. Let me tell you who you were made to be. Weary, heavy laden, calm. Don't try and give me anything. But if you receive empty handed from me, you will be welcome and you will be safe. 
are all far more like Gideon than we'd like to think. But God's grace extends to the most fearful and doubtful of sinners. And therefore that call, mission and cleansing, conquest and cleansing, shared by us as a whole church, is one that we can go out joyfully to do when our identity is rooted solidly in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we uh, confess we are very much like Gideon. We hear these words and we don't believe them. We believe, but help us with our unbelief. And we ask that in your mercy you would make us so confident of all that you've done for us, so confident in your power and cleansing, that we're able to go into the world with the happy news of the gospel and we're able to root out the idolatry that remains in our lives. Bless us, our Father, by the mighty power of your Spirit who dwells with us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.